The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. So what I'd like to explore with you tonight is this idea about equanimity as a vehicle for personal and social transformation. And I want to begin with um, a poem that I found maybe two years ago, but I've really reflected on this a lot and have found it very helpful in my own practice. And it was composed by Hogan Bays, who is the co-abbot of the Great um, Val Monastery in uh, Oregon. It's a Zen monastery. This is the poem. In this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found, and truth is not a thing. Therefore, I vow to choose this Dharma entrance gate. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. I'm going to read it again, usually, because I think any poem worth reading is probably worth reading twice. In this passing moment, karma ripens, and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found, and truth is not a thing. Therefore, I vow to choose this Dharma entrance gate. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. 
this, I think, is a wonderful statement of equanimity, of accepting what is. Equanimity is the fourth and final Brahma-vihara. And the Brahma-viharas are the divine abodes, which are the wholesome states of mind in which we can abide. Sometimes they're called the divine abidings. They are essentially safe places for the mind. And the Buddha teaches that at least one of them is always accessible to us. All the Brahma-viharas are manifestations of the intention not to harm ourselves or others. And in this way, they are all based in love or warm regard, a kind of friendliness, tenderness, um, fellow feeling. Uh, They're also sometimes called the immeasurables because you can never have too much of any one of them. And I'm going to recap them briefly. So the first one, and usually the first one that people practice with, so this is traditionally the order in which we practice with them, is called loving kindness or metta. And um, it's basically, at the very foundation of it, it's letting go of ill will toward ourselves and others. Sometimes you say loving kindness, that seems like kind of a really high bar. But the bar is actually one that I think is really attainable. Letting go of ill will toward ourselves and others. And we try to cultivate friendliness, fellow feeling, and what we wish for ourselves, safety, well-being, we wish for others. So it's basic creaturely good wishes. And we begin in the practice, when it's done more formally, of offering loving kindness to ourselves, extending it out to someone who is easy, someone who's been in support of us, and then maybe to friends and uh, on and on. We offer it often to um, the, um, it's called the, the uh, familiar stranger, someone we may see every day but don't know, like maybe your postal carrier, someone at the gym, maybe someone you pass who's always at some intersection with a sign, someone you can visualize but you don't know, and you just offer those same good wishes that you have for yourself. So that's kind of the basis of, um, of the Brahma-viharas. There are states of mind where we don't have ill will. The second state of mind that we uh, cultivate is compassion, karuna, and it's the recognition of suffering and the wish for the sufferer, oneself or others, to be free from pain. And in Pali, the language in which the first Buddhist scriptures were written, um, karuna is sometimes uh, understood as a quivering of the heart in response to the pain of another. Uh, The third Brahma-vihara is appreciative joy, or sometimes it's called sympathetic joy. Occasionally, it's translated as gladness. And the uh, Pali word for it is mudita. It is uh, joy in the good fortune or happiness for another. And when we experience um, good fortune for ourselves, usually the appropriate response is gratitude and also kind of equanimity in understanding um, the contingency of our our good fortune. So mudita is not one where we we offer a kind of mudita 
to ourselves when we're in, in a place of good fortune, we really have gratitude um, for it. Um, and the final one is equanimity, upeka. And this is characterized sometimes as steadfastness, balance, unshakableness, imperturbability, impartiality. It's much like serenity in the serenity prayer. It's this, this balanced state. Uh, sometimes when people talk about um, equanimity, it's not falling into extremes. It's staying in the middle. Um, sometimes in the suttas, it's characterized as being like bamboo, very, very flexible without breaking. Uh, sometimes it's another metaphor that's used a lot is um, the sky or a large lake. So equanimity is this um, being sort of um, steadfast no matter what the, the conditions are. And each of these divine abodes has both what's called a near and a far enemy. And uh, the near enemy is a quality that seems a lot like the divine abodes, but it's masquerading. And the far enemy is one we can see clearly. So for example, with loving kindness, the opposite of loving kindness would be hatred. So that one we can see really clearly. The um, near enemy of loving kindness is sometimes translated as attachment. But we know that there's healthy attachment, like in healthy kinds of parenting. So I think probably for our um, sort of 21st century, a better understanding of that near enemy is that it is enmeshment and codependency, uh, sort of having an agenda, wanting, uh, wishing well for someone with a particular kind of, of agenda. And that would be the near enemy of loving kindness. With compassion, the opposite of compassion would be cruelty. So again, really easy to see. Um, the near enemy is pity. The near enemy is, and it may look like compassion, but when we're pitying someone, it's having this sense of, of separation. This, I, I feel so sorry for you. And often having that sense, and I'm so glad it's not me. That, that's often sort of the, the undercurrent of that. Um, with uh, sympathetic joy, the opposite of that would be envy. And the near enemy is a kind of hypocrisy, comparison, condescension. So for example, I'm so glad you got that new car. Of course, mine is much nicer. I would never, you know. Never want to have that kind of car. Mine is, but you know, good for you. So I mean, it's it, it's sometimes we we notice that if we're um, expressing um, sort of congratulating another person on their good fortune, it's really interesting to see what sort of comparison is going on in the mind. And one of the really interesting things that the Buddha talks about is in those sorts of comparisons, there's always suffering. And there's a, uh, this is the topic for another, another talk, but there's a concept in uh, the suttas. It's called mana, and it means comparison. 
and it, sometimes it's, it's translated as conceit, but it's above, below, same as, that any of these sorts of personal comparisons are often, are always a source of, of suffering and of making a self. So with sympathetic joy, we really uh, can sort of investigate when we're wishing another well, congratulating another person. Is there any condescension or hypocrisy or comparison going on in there? But now to get to the, our topic tonight, it's equanimity. And the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. You know, well, that you know, not caring is, is the near enemy. Um, and sometimes people can say, I'm just being equanimous. I'm just practicing serenity. Um, and it's not really being present to what is. It's checking out. Okay, So that sort of indifference checking out sometimes masquerades as, um, as equanimity. The far enemy of equanimity is whatever happens to us when we are overwhelmed. So it's a sense of being overwhelmed of being reactive, or any of the states of reactivity. So for example, someone who is overwhelmed with grief and is is completely undone by grief, which is something that happens, the appropriate response to that is not to say, you should really be more equanimous about this, but to practice compassion and to practice self-compassion. So I think because in, in the first three, the far enemy is sort of a, a moral failing, uh, you know, hatred, cruelty, envy. Um, being overwhelmed is not in any way a moral failing. It's what happens to us. And I think it's, it's sometimes people um, are, especially about, about grief, um, the, the appropriate response is not to be more equanimous, but to, to have compassion. But the state of reactivity, extreme reactivity, we can see that clearly as uh, an enemy of equanimity, of being balanced, of, of being just furious about something. Uh, the, that's, um, that's a really clear example. And consequently, equanimity is the last of the four divine abodes to be cultivated. It's um, it's sometimes talked about a quality of spiritual maturity. Um, it is intricately connected to wisdom. It's really about understanding suffering and the causes of suffering. That's how we develop an equanimous mind. We really get to see more and more these great patterns of cause and effect. So equanimity recognizes the complexity of cause and effect and the fundamentally impermanent nature of all phenomena, including oneself. And this is where the five daily reflections come in, that it's really understanding our own fragility. It's really understanding that the circumstances that we find ourselves in right now could change in in a minute, and realizing that we also have very little control over external circumstances. What we mostly have control over is sort of the quality of our mind, our good intentions. You know, can we go back to rooting ourselves in no ill will? 
when something arises? Can we move to compassion? Can we move to appreciative joy in the good fortune of another? Can we respond to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows with this equanimity, with being non-reactive, with being balanced, with being able to take in the present moment. So equanimity always takes the big picture. So, And I think that's why it's a practice of spiritual maturity, and it's really a practice of humility, too. That with equanimity, equanimity knows that it doesn't know everything. It knows that suffering comes from resisting the reality of the present moment's experience. And this is why, for example, in the five reflections, you know, when I do them and I think about, you know, illness and infirmity await me. I'm clearly growing old. I know my death approaches daily. And I know that what is dear and delightful to me will be separated from me upon my death. And really taking that in. And this isn't passivity, but it's an active choosing to bear whatever is present. And that's what I think is going on in that poem in the beginning. That, you know, when starving, I choose hunger. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. So it's a very um, active uh, choosing, not passivity, not, you know, well, this, this is what's happening to me, but really choosing to me. And that idea of what is um, hard to bear, etymologically, that um, connects with the word dukkha, which is dukkha, the, the, um, the word for suffering. It really comes etymologically from the idea that an axle and a hub aren't true, so that it, there's a kind of clunkiness to it. Um, so the axle and the wheel are out of alignment. And uh, Santikara was talking about this one time, and he said that in dukkha, so if you, you know, sort of go with that analogy of the car, it's what, what's hard to bear, literally. Dukkha is what's hard to bear for us. So equanimity requires that we ex- accept that we are responsible for our own intentional actions. And this is the part about karma, that we realize that the habits of mind that we cultivate are the habits that are going to influence our future choices. The states of mind we choose to entertain are going to really determine our, uh, and not a strong determine, but are going to incline us toward similar states of mind in, uh, in the future. So equanimity really requires that we accept that we can't control the choices that others make and the suffering that ensues too. That one of the equanimity phrases sometimes that people use is, as much as I care for you and wish well for you, I know that I cannot control your choices and that you are the heir to your own karma. And many, many, many parents have said that to themselves numerous times, uh, that as much as I wish you well, only want the best for you. I know that I cannot control your choices, and ultimately, you are responsible for them, you are, which is to say, you are the heir to your own karma. 
And it's this acknowledgement of the way things are, this seeing clearly, that gives us the best chance of choosing a skillful response in a difficult situation. The more we can see things clearly, the more we're not swept away, um, reactive. You know, there, there's a, a bumper sticker. There used to be a bumper sticker that says something like, you know, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. I think if you're paying attention, you understand that outrage is not a skillful position to act from. You maybe feel very strongly that something is incredibly wrong, but that being totally reactive, being totally outraged, often is not the place where you can affect skillful change. And I've also begun to think about equanimity as a foundation for courage. And we don't talk about courage a lot in the Buddhist tradition, but I think about equanimity as the courage to be with what is, the courage not to shut down, and the courage to bear witness to tremendous suffering. And sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes that in in this moment, that's all we can do, but we choose. We choose to bear witness and not to shut down. And I think equanimity is also an invitation to courageously and humbly recognize our own implicit bias, uh, our own defensiveness around identity threat. And uh, you know, implicit bias is a kind of unconscious um, preferring. And I know many people in this community have worked really hard to uncover their implicit biases around race, around gender. And it's really painful. This is where identity threat comes in, because we're here because we're good people, and we want to do something about suffering. And we, when we discover our own implicit bias, our own opportunity hoarding, our own um, privilege, unexamined privilege, that's really a painful place to be, and it takes a lot of courage. And I think that's where equanimity comes in, the courage to really look at, um, at that. And you know, mindfulness is a lot about making the unconscious conscious. And when we bring mindfulness to something and we are uh, in a state of, of observing, we get to see sort of the real terrain of our hearts and minds. And you know, as many persons have pointed out, self-knowledge is not always good news. So, um, But I, I think there is a place that, that courage really comes up with equanimity. And equanimity enables us to stand with courage in the face of great challenge. So I've been trying to imagine uh, equanimity not just as um, an individual mind state or a virtue, but thinking about what it would look like as um, a civic or a social practice. Um, And what would an equanimous society look like? And it's really interesting to me that two recent books, not um, Buddhist books, um, one written by um, uh, 
a thinker who is, identifies very much in the far left and one by a thinker who identifies very much on the, uh, on the right are, uh, have come to sort of uh, an interesting similarity of conclusion about this, what an equanimous society would look like. And the first book is by a woman named Sally Cohen, and that's K-O-H-N, not C-O-H-E-N, but Sally Cohen. And she is a Brooklyn-based lesbian leftist journal, uh, uh, journalist, and um, she wrote a, a really interesting book called um, The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity. And it's an interesting book that as a journalist, she goes out and meets all people who have been in polarized situations and um, have had reason, you might say, to be in a very polarized situation and how they work to try to find common cause with the uh, with a person who is an opposite. So there's there are stories, for example, about um, an Israeli father who's lost a child and a Palestinian father who's lost a child, and how they come to an understanding. Um, and uh, and um, she argues that the undoing of hate is connection. It's seeing and understanding the inherent worth as well as the fear and the defensiveness of, of another. And it, um, it also requires seeing how the toxicity of hate really damages the hater. She's really looking at what hate does to us. And then there, the other book, um, more recent book, um, Sally's book came out, I think, in 2000, early 2018, because now, there's now a paperback edition. But there's another new book that's just come out um, called Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. And this is by Arthur Brooks, who just resigned as the president of the American Enterprise Institute. And Brooks is a conservative, Catholic, cisgendered white male. Um, and um, he uh, looks to, uh, and he said when he was trying to um, understand like what, what contempt is, because he thinks that's really sort of hatred, contempt. And he talks about... Um, some of John Gottlieb's work, who some of you may know, Gottlieb is um, a great, a great read on marriage. Um, and Gottlieb talks about how contempt is just toxic to a relationship. That when we treat each other with contempt, we are, you know, poisoning the water for ourselves as well as as the other person. And um, so. Uh, looking at both the, what happens to the person who is treated with contempt and what happens to the person who offers contempt, who maintains contempt. And it's really interesting because the person he looks to to figure out you know, what would the opposite of contempt be, it's the Dalai Lama. And he's had several occasions to meet with and talk with um, the Dalai Lama. And uh, he asked uh, the Dalai Lama, you know, so what can we do about contempt? And the Dalai Lama said, practice warm-heartedness. Practice warm-heartedness, which is actually metta, right? So, um, and, and Brooks also talks about you know, how 
we have to really look within ourselves. Just as Sally Cohen said, you know, when we have this sort of righteous, righteous reactivity, this righteous hatred, to really interrogate that, to really see what that, what that does to us. And, um, Brooks essentially argues the same thing, um, that uh, we need to encourage more, that we need to stand up for people who aren't in the room. We need to challenge contempt when we're among like-minded people within our own little tribe and someone is speaking contemptuously of someone who is not in, not in the room. And also look at who you have treated with contempt in your life. And... If you have treated people, make an amends. You know, and we do really have in American society um, a kind of civic ideal about what equanimity would be. Um, you know, we think that, um, or we don't think that, but our aspiration as a society is for a judge and a jury to be impartial, right? to be equanimous to make a decision based on the information presented, not on preferences, not on identifying with one group rather than uh, another. Now, we know this is, is often not the case, but it's interesting that we have this ideal of impartiality for our, our legal system. And I have to tell you, I, I was thinking about this being equanimous today as I was watching the Women's World Soccer Final, which um, I got to see in my neighborhood. Matthews Park over here had a, a, a viewing party. So there were lots of parents and kids, and we got to watch this on the big screen. And I was thinking, here I am talking about equanimity, and I'm rooting for you know Team USA. And I thought, but I don't wish harm for the Dutch team. I don't want anyone to get hurt. I want them to play well. I won't, uh, I won't be devastated if the U.S. loses. I'll be a little disappointed, but it will be okay. You know, and, and thinking about you know, that as, so there is preference, there is partiality. I really did want Team USA women to win, but it would have been okay if the Dutch had won. And I thought about, years ago, I, I had the wonderful chance to study with James Barrett's who's written a book, Awakening Joy, and he teaches this online. And James talked about how, as a young person, he loved sports, like loved being a fan. And he said the reason why he loved being a fan was, first of all, it gave him a chance to be some part of something bigger than himself. He said that was just a great, a great feeling. And it also, he said, it was great to be with people who were different from you, but you all had something in common. You all wanted that team to win. You were all on the same page. Even if you didn't know each other, you had this kind of common bond. And he said, and those seem like really worthwhile things. It's not that we can't um, have uh, these sorts of preferences or experience, but it's really how we have them, that we do it in a way that is balanced, that's not, not extreme. Equanimity as a civic virtue might be fairness. Um, fairness that maybe sees through, I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot in our society is equality in places where we really need to be talking about equity. 
and what equity might mean. Um, and there are some really interesting um, studies about equity. There's also an interesting study that they did in Canada, where a town in Canada for three years got a universal basic income. And how that just changed things for everyone, knowing that everyone in this town got about $20,000 a year. It was a you know, town under 100,000, 65,000 people, something like that. And it was um, a short-lived experiment. Um, people decided that there's just too much opposition to people you know, getting money for something that they, they didn't work for. But it made a tremendous difference for everyone. And those are places where we could really think, like, so what would it mean if we all, if we all had some basic, um, basic income? Or we, we really practiced equity so that people could get um, what, they, um, what they needed. If we, and I think that if we truly believe that every human being has the potential to awaken, which is really part of our Buddhist practice, every human being has the potential to awaken, how can we regard each other with hatred and contempt? How can we really do that? if we really believe that no matter what a person's situation is at this moment, that they have the, the uh, capacity to, um, to awaken, how can we treat them with hate and contempt? And I'm going to close this with a wonderful quote by James Baldwin. And here's what James Baldwin said. It began to seem that one would have to hold the mind forever in two ideas that seemed to be in opposition. The first idea was acceptance. The acceptance, totally without rancor, of life as it is, and men, we can say men and women, as they are. In the light of this idea, it goes without saying that injustice is commonplace. But this did not mean that one could be complacent, for the second idea was of equal power, that one must never, in one's own life, accept these injustices as commonplace, but must fight, with them, fight them with all one's strength. This fight begins, however, in the heart, and it has now been laid to my charge to keep my own heart free of hatred and despair. I'll read that again. It began to seem that one would have to hold in the mind forever two ideas which seemed to be in opposition. The first idea was acceptance. The acceptance, totally without rancor, of life as it is, and men and women as they are. In the light of this idea, it goes without saying that injustice is a commonplace. But this did not mean that one could be complacent, for the second idea was of equal power, that one must never, in one's own life, accept these injustices as commonplace, but must fight them with all one's strength. The fight begins, however, in the heart, and it has now been laid to my charge to keep my own heart free of hatred and despair. So what I would like us to do in 
the next 20, 25 minutes, uh, is I have a couple of questions I'd like people to see what they think of. So uh, if that's okay, if people have questions they want to ask first, they can, but I, I do have some questions that I would really like us to discuss. So on the one hand, there's this idea of the Buddhist practitioner as sort of passive and calm abiding. Okay, that's kind of the, I think, almost the caricature of a Buddhist. Passive, calm, abiding. So what would an engaged, engaged and equanimous practice look like? And that's, that's the first question. I'm going to give you the second, and then you can see what you'd like to respond to. Second, is there such a thing as righteous reactivity? And who suffers? So we've got a, a mic here. And uh, this is being recorded, so just so that you know. Uh, if you're willing to say your name, that's great. Um, so who would like to respond to any of this? So what would engage? I mean, you can just take an idea of what an example of an engaged and equanimous practice might be. I mean, we see it in His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Um, so what are some other ideas that people might have? Ah, Jean, let's, could you pass this back to Jean? Thank you. Um, one person, this is loud. <laughs> um, one person that I admire very much is Jane Jane Goodall. She's getting more and more elderly, and she is still choosing to travel around and talk about the environment. And it comes out of such a place of love. Uh, I saw her, I think, last week on 60 Minutes with a photographer, a nature photographer, who was a close friend of hers. And there's no rancor. It, she doesn't appear angry. She talks about her love of nature and how we must save this beauty that's all around us. But I think she embodies that, mm -hmm. um, somebody who's equanimous and oh, thank you. That's whatever you asked about. <laughs> that's a wonderful example. Other, other ideas that people have? Uh, my name is Robert, and um, in 1981, I got to meet James Baldwin, and um, he spoke to a group of uh, lesbian and gay people in New York City. It wasn't recorded, unfortunately, but um, he spoke in the manner that you just described, um, very calm, very sure of himself, and... Um, I think very much to my surprise, because um, I didn't know his work that much. But um, a friend of mine was involved with um, making a documentary with him in, at that time, and I asked a friend if he would speak to this group, and he did. And lastly, um, in 1983, I got to meet the Dalai Lama. And um, by the way, his birthday was yesterday. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I got to ask him a question, and the question is very relevant to tonight's discussion. Um, I couldn't get over being really, really hurt and angered by um, uh, a fractured relationship. And um, so I asked the Dalai Lama, what do you do when you can't forgive someone? And through his translator, he understood the question. He simply said, he raised his hand, he said, that person is gone. The only person you hurt is yourself. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Robert. And if anyone has not, there's a wonderful documentary about James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro, and you can uh, find it on Amazon Prime and lots of other places. So really, really worth, worth watching. I Am Not Your Negro. Other responses? Ah, Kermit, way over there. Thank you. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about equanimity as non-discrimination between oppressor and oppressed, um, your uh, political hero versus your political villain. Um, when the Dalai Lama was told that Mao Zedong died, uh, the Dalai Lama wept. And he wept for all of the, the bad karma that Mao Zedong was setting himself up for or creating or had created. Um, and yeah, and this was, this was somebody who killed his people and took his entire country. And, um, you know, at some point, Donald Trump is going to fall or hard or he's going to die or something. And um, it's hard to imagine that that kind of response would be seen. I tend to think there would be dancing in the streets rather than real weeping for a person who is suffering and, of course, has created suffering. But um, that, that would be interesting to see if that, that happened. Thank you. Now, one of the things that I, I find really helpful when I hear people um, on the radio or, or in the news saying um, hateful things or people who have, um, I, I think about the people who are um, treating children so badly right now uh, on the border. And I do think about how much suffering goes on in the minds of the oppressor of what people have to shut down what people can't admit to themselves, the sorts of stories people tell themselves to make something okay. I mean, when we think about that kind of, of mental suffering, it is, it is suffering. Um, the ways in which people dehumanize other people, those sorts of stories. And you know, we, we can just imagine the things. What would it be like to have a mind like that? What would it be like? And, and so often, that just really opens compassion because we can recognize the suffering of a mind that is always in denial. 
or the suffering of a mind that is always grandiose, um, the, the suffering of uh, someone who might never have truly intimate relationships because of their own uh, narcissism, for ex example. Um, and someone uh, a while ago was telling me about um, having uh, a new relative in the family. And that person just hated dogs. And this person had a pet. And there's a lot of, of conflict. And, but she just hates dogs. And I think, oh, that's, it's so sad not to have had the pleasure of uh, a really affectionate relationship with an animal. So instead of seeing the new daughter-in-law as uh, someone who was you know, really just hateful, of seeing this as someone who was missing out on, on something, who had never had that, that pleasure. And that really was able to change the way that um, this person looked at her, her daughter-in-law, of, of feeling compassion for her instead of feeling angry that uh, you know, she didn't want the dog in the house. And, and um, so you know, we can use these divine abodes to really imaginatively um, put ourselves in places where we, we suffer much less. And we do it by seeing the suffering of others. So who else has something to say? Hi, John. Um, I think uh, in, in my life with meditation as, the, as a kind of grounding principle, the, when, I, when I'm not allowed to be rageful because I, or I don't allow myself, and I don't want to get um, just disdainful, the two um, things I kind of drive through the center are um, persistence and attention to detail. And that's what a meditation, uh, those are things that are allowable. So when I encounter injustice, um, and I can't just fly off the handle, and I don't want to not care, those seem to be kind of um, ways that meditation allows us to react in uh, ways that aren't so uh, disagreeable. Thank you. Mary, I thought you were going to say, and that's what Mary Oliver says, because that's what Mary Oliver talks about, you know, <laughs> attention to detail, persistence, and, um, you know, that that's the way to, I, I have on my bulletin board, and I can't, I can't remember it now, I, even to paraphrase it, uh, but it is about you know, how to live a life is attention to detail, paying attention, and really our practice, that's exactly what it, it supports, paying attention. So that we can see the the suffering uh, of maybe the person who's attacking us, or seeing the the suffering, uh, you know, seeing the defensiveness of someone else, um, and and we can pay attention to that. So thanks lots, John. Please. What we were talking about before it reminded me of something that Mark said one time about how just because somebody's doing something that we consider intolerable, like what Trump is doing, why does it make it okay to make fun of somebody's physical appearance and how it feels to like give into that hatred and that negative energy and like make it your own? 
Um, so I was just thinking about that, but also I still find it hard to not develop, like I find it hard to have compassion for somebody who's treating innocent people and children this way. So I feel like it's hard to kind of balance that in a way. So that's where I think, um, I mean, I certainly engage with this too. One of the practices, and I've, I've mentioned this to people before sometimes, is I, I think about people on their deathbed uh, remembering sometimes the terrible things that they've done and how much suffering they would have at that time. I mean, that, again, is a sort of little imaginative exercise. But the, the part about making fun of people's appearances, you know, I was at the um, march last week um, about you know, detained. It was against the separation of families. And I do find that some of the, the chants are things that I just, I, they're too binary. They're, they're too, um, it, I feel, I work with the compromise that I feel sometimes in being with people who are engaged in political action and the we're good, you're bad um, kind of binary distinction is I don't think we're never all good, we're never all, all bad. Still, I'm going to throw my lot in with this group because this seems like the pragmatic, most effective, you know, to have another body there saying families should not be separated. Um, but, and I do think that making fun of people's appearance is, um, is just something that is, um, unconscionable. No adult should do that. And children should learn from that. That adults don't do that. No. I'm not sure if I might be sort of restating the obvious, but um, in in thinking about your question about what an engaged equanimous Buddhist would look like, um, I find myself thinking that. Uh, any action taken with anger as a foundation, anger or hatred, or perhaps a number of other related ideas, any action taken with those things as a foundation is fundamentally bound to be a wrong action. And any action taken with love as its foundation is fundamentally bound to be a right action. And when I think in those terms, I, I, I think I believe this to be true, although I'm still exploring all of this. Anyway, I think that if, if, those are the, if those things are true, I think to be an engaged equanimous practitioner, you sort of can't engage until you've inspected where you're at with the problem that you're faced with and found yourself able to accept it to the level that really there's no hatred, there's no anger left. There is love and a desire to change things because love works. You know, I think ideally, um, 
if we were all able to, or you know, speak for myself, if I were able to completely you know, um, act from love, I, I get closer to the, the no ill will, like not, and maybe, I may be fooling myself about this, but I, I think often that I can say, I don't want this person to suffer for the sake of that person just suffering. I want justice done. I don't want revenge. Um, in, uh, and I, the issue uh, is that often we're called upon to act, that we, we don't always have the time or that the circumstances often compel us to act or our non-action is an action. So waiting until we get um, completely clear. And this was pointed out to me a couple of years ago in a, uh, a training that Terry Karras did here at, um, at Common Ground that was about um, sort of uh, understanding um, white privilege in a way. And it was particularly that um, white women in particular always said, you know, I don't know enough about it. Uh, and that this idea that we can't do anything until we know enough. I mean, we all have an obligation, I think, to be as informed about something as we reasonably can be expected to. But that this idea of, you know, I can't, I can't take a position because I don't know enough, that a lot of times that is, um, disingenuous, that, that that's a way of, a socially acceptable way of not taking a position about something. So it's something that I have really become aware of and try to uh, work with, with myself when I find myself saying, I don't know enough. And there are things where I just might honestly don't know enough about the minutia of the, the politics about something. And it's also okay to, to say sometimes, I just really don't know. We don't have to have an opinion about everything. But using I don't know enough um, is, uh, is often a kind of, of, uh, of cop-out. And I was trying to think if I could come up with a counterexample to what you were, were saying. Sometimes uh, I, I think about sort of as being a parent and responding in anger to something that might actually have been something that, um, you know, I think that sort of mother bear, you grab your kid out of, out of the way kind of thing when the kid is, is in danger. Although I guess in that case you could say it's sort of an underlying, underlying love. I don't know if it's always the case that, that if we, we act out of anger that it's always going to be harmful. I think we're always learning from it and refining. And we said, what would that action have been like if I weren't quite so angry? And there are, you know, again, degrees of, of anger. Jean has a, a Jalone, Jean and Jalone. I think that I like the um, acting out of love and purifying our hearts, but I think it's really important to um, make the scope of the love universal because uh, a lot of harm is done in this world acting out of love for one's own small group family, tribe, community, even nation, rather than looking at the 
big picture. How is this going to affect everyone? Which has been talked about tonight, mm-hmm. but just, you know, framing it as if you act out of love and not, not anger. Um, love needs to be broad. Um, yeah, I, I agree with, um, with a lot of what has been said tonight, but I also, I think what's resonating with me right now is that, uh, as a white woman and as an educated white woman, and even though I grew up in poverty, I have an incredible amount of power and I have an incredible amount of agency and a lot of people don't. And sometimes I have found myself in situations where, you know, even though I'm shaking in my voice or I'm not uh, the expert, I may know something. And I'm a somewhat diminutive person, but I kind of think of myself as a chihuahua. <laughs> um, I speak up because it can really be um, the one voice of safety, you know. And if, for somebody who doesn't speak English as their first language or who's undereducated or who lacks the power, and especially in a room full of white people, which is really common here in Minnesota. Um, you know, it's really imperative that even though I don't consider myself to be an expert and speaking for everyone, that if I don't use my the voice I have to at least bring awareness or an alternative perspective to the conversation and to challenge hatred or bigotry when I see it present itself, um, I'm not doing my piece to be part of the solution. And so that's what I think of when I think of engaged activism like it's really incumbent upon me to speak up and say something. That being said, I have to be really careful to do so in a skillful, gentle way. I'm not looking to demonize. I'm not looking to create more rancor. I'm looking to uh, broaden the conversation. And in fact, um, ironically, I just discovered that I have additional siblings in the last two years through Ancestry. turns out they're all very conservative Republicans. <laughs> so I've had lots of opportunity to practice. And it's like, oh, these are not people I would choose to have in my community normally, but they're here. And, um, and so here's an opportunity. And, you know, it's the siloing of thoughts and kind of being in our own thought bubble that is a lot of people are speculating as part of the problem why we're in the situation we're in presently. So. That's, I was thinking of that line from Hogan Bays, whom I encounter, I choose to meet. Yeah. And if we, if we really were to take that to heart, I choose. I choose to be here. I choose to speak. I choose to connect, even... With all the difference, I choose to connect. That would be that's a really beautiful aspiration for all of us. And since you have the mic and it's now eight thirty, we can um, begin to close. Yeah. So Gene uh, and I are going to do the announcements together. It's going to be super fun. <laughs> <laughs> We're the co-hosts tonight. Um, so I uh, just wanted to say thank you so much, Patrice, for being here as guest speaker when Mark is away teaching elsewhere. Um, and uh, everybody who is familiar with Common Ground knows that uh, all of the teaching that is done here is offered freely. In other words, there's no monetary charge or fee to come to programs at Common Ground. 
Um, however, of course, like every other organization, we have expenses, and um, those are taken care of by uh, free offerings of um, well, often it's often it's financial uh, offerings and. We have donation bowls on the other side of this wall where you can offer a donation. I'll also say that this tradition, um, the donations, the Pali word for it is dana, which means generosity. And this is the 2,000 plus um, year tradition ever since the time of the Buddha that the teachings are offered freely because they are considered priceless. So um, it's a practice to um, for each of us to ask within ourselves, um, what feels right? Um, should I give something considering my own circumstances, considering the value of this, um, what's offered here, and also um, an interest in maintaining the practice for or the uh, programs like this for other people in the future? Because we, of course, are the recipients of others who have been generous before us that have made uh, what we're doing now um, possible to happen. And uh, here uh, the policy is that the donations, when we have a guest teacher, two-thirds go to the teacher and one-third to the maintenance of the center and the ongoing operations of Common Ground. So um, you have that opportunity to uh, donate in the center bowl for Patrice's which two-thirds of it will go to Patrice or the other bowl, where all of it goes to common ground. Um, so thank you very much for considering that. Also, some people help by volunteering, and there are a lot of different things that, that um, people offer to keep the center going. So thank you. And I get to do the announcements. Oh, boy. It's my first time, so wish me luck here. Um, so there's an upcoming half-day retreat with Mark Nunberg on Saturday, July 13th. It starts at 1 p.m. in the afternoon and goes till 5. Uh, and then Jean, right here, or no, it says Jean Haley and Jane Roundhorse, sorry. Uh, Mindful Self-Compassion Practice Group happens Friday, July 19th, so that's in two Fridays from now, um, from 7 to 8.30. Uh, the Lost and Found in the Basement is getting close to full, um, they will be donating any items that are unclaimed. Uh, if you're missing something uh, or have been missing it for a while, you might want to check. It's downstairs, kind of around the corner. Um, and otherwise, it's going to go to the Goodwill. Uh, we're looking for a mowing volunteer. Uh, so if you would like to mow the lawn once a month, that's it, a once-a-month commitment, please let Gabe know if you're interested. And then the last and final uh, information here. Oh, I lied. There's two. Uh, Sunday and Wednesday, that's tonight, I guess, uh, stacking cushions. So tomorrow morning, uh, there's going to be a sit, but then there may be yoga. Do you know? Yeah, after the sit. Oh, after the sit. So what we do is all of the folding chairs go down the stairs and to the right and to the right, and they get stacked on the wall. And then all of the cushions, except for the first two rows, get stacked in that corner over there. And so if before you go, if you have time to help stack all but two rows of the cushions and bring down the folding chairs. That would be enormously helpful. 
And the last announcement is just a reminder that there is a side entrance on the south side of the building. If you come in, especially if it's raining, if you're able-bodied to come in that side door, there's a whole bunch of coat hooks and shoe racks and stuff down there. It's a really convenient way to come in, and then that frees up the entryway. Um, we've had some problems with um, people with mobility issues getting in the door and trying to climb over all the shoes, and so trying to keep a clear path. So if you're an able-bodied person, try to use the side door. So thank you. So I'd like, I'd like to end tonight by sharing the merit, which is, I think, one of the most beautiful um, Buddhist rituals. And I think, it's, I think about sharing the merit as an act of imaginative generosity. So what we do in sharing the merit is we imagine, if it were possible, if any of us got any benefit from tonight's um, practice, that we, uh, if we could, we would willingly share it with everyone. So, so mindful of the good fortune in our lives, the blessings that we have received, if there's any benefit from our practice tonight, we would happily, gladly share it with our parents, teachers, families, friends, with beings known and unknown, near and far, beings imagined and even beings unimagined. May all beings be liberated. May all beings live with ease. May all beings live with peace. Thank you for your sincere practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.